Have you ever gotten your message lost in translation? Launched a well-thought-out content on social media only to get lost in the noise? Welcome to the Moving Beyond Acronyms Podcast. We are here to help you with practical tools to find your voice, craft shareable content, stand out in the marketplace, expand your tribe, and convert followers into ambassadors or customers. I'm Torrent, your host, a message master that's helped leaders, entrepreneurs, and businesses ignite their message with lasting impact. Each week, we will go behind the scenes to share real and deep conversations with the most prominent message masters on how they took an idea and crafted content that have trended to the stratosphere, boosted the bottom line, and improved the world around them. Now, let's get started. Welcome to episode number five, and we have now Santi Ho here, which is really exciting for me. She's a classmate of mine from Columbia University, where we both got our master's. She's a passionate advisor. She teaches right now a faculty lecturer at Columbia University, also adjunct lecturer at City College of New York. And she has her own business, which is called Media Wolverine. She's managing director. She's also the st- director of strategy for Convince and Convert, which is part of Jay Bayer's company. Also, she's a speaker and she's um, accumulated uh, multiple awards, the PR News Platinum Award, Forrester Groundswell Award, to name a few. And she's ranked uh, in the top 50 most influential content marketing director. Woo, that's a lot of accolades there, Santi. <laughs> really excited to have you on. And uh, it's so great to have an expert after we've had a couple of episodes where we've kind of had some really interesting case studies that really fit into what you've been doing. So I think first, I just want to learn a little bit about you. What got you into communications and marketing? Well, thanks so much for having me on the show, Torrin. And I'm really excited to talk about all of the great questions that you've got lined up. I started my career in marketing right out of undergraduate. And I think that for me, communications has always been so important because my parents are both attorneys. So they're both speakers. They're both people who are always extremely articulate, extremely verbal. And I grew up around people who argued for a living and were thinking about the power of communication for a living. So when you are in that kind of environment, it's very easy to see that marketing and communications are a pathway. And not only are they a pathway, but that every industry needs some form of communications. I always tell people that the discipline of marketing is really a tool set that can fit into so many spaces. And that's why now I work with clients across the spectrum, whether that's luxury goods, travel, or nonprofits, or professional services. I work with people in so many different industries because we all need to be able to speak and connect with our audiences. And that's so important. So for me, it's really fascinating and interesting, and it's been a really fun career. So for me, looking back on my life, this is, this is probably the best pathway that I could have selected. I would like to learn a little bit more because I think what I really like about what you've done, because you've actually helped me when I worked at Gasnova, you were helping us to take some complicated issues and simplifying it. And you've really worked at some impressive large organizations like at the UN food and agriculture. You've done this, uh, you helped out with our podcast of the IMF and, Mm -hmm. and really how do you make something so complicated, simple or like experts like that? I think because you've had mom and dad that's been attorneys, you kind of known how 
to dissect it and package it in such a way that people can receive the message. But that takes a long process and it's hard sometimes. I think you're definitely right that it can be very difficult for organizations to simplify things because sometimes they feel like simplification equates dilution. And that's not necessarily true, right? When we are trying to break down our concepts so that our audience can understand them. What we're trying to do is make them accessible, make them relevant in their own lives. And I think that's actually really important. So if you talk about the FAO, for instance, so the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, what they are trying to do is to explain to people around the world the importance of agriculture, the importance of farmers, the importance of both small and large farms and the health of the environment to support our food supplies. So, for instance, they uh, did a campaign all around the importance of bees and why it is important for us to plant plants that give bees sustenance in addition to all of the other things that they're doing when they are uh, pollinating our plants. And also uh, they've done campaigns around soil and why soil is so important and what does the health of the soil in your community actually mean? So they're taking these ideas that are very lofty and broad, right? The, The sustaining of all of our food supply and saying, how can we take some of those specific elements out break them down in a way that you can relate to in your everyday life and also see in the ways that you actually discuss. So it doesn't take away from the fact that they have all of these different experts going in depth into these topics, but they understand that for some channels, they're going to be creating that content, long form content that's very academic and very explanatory. And then for other channels like an Instagram or a Facebook or a blog post, they're really breaking down those concepts into much smaller pieces so that it does become something that a teacher might share with their classroom or that a parent and a child can discuss when it comes up on their smartphone. So I think that it's really about understanding who are the different audiences that you need to serve and breaking down the concepts in a way that they can understand in their own lives. I think the relevancy portion of this is so important because oftentimes we as brand side people will say, this is what we're about and we want to come to the table and express to people the ways in which we serve our audience. But the truth is the audience doesn't care in that way, right? Most audiences are, for lack of a better term, self, selfish, right? Self-centered. They want to understand what does it mean to them in their lives from their perspective. So we actually have to do that translation. And I think that's a lot of the work of marketers to help bring the people from the company, the organization, the brand, and the audience together through this bridging of the communication. It's interesting you talk about the bridging because that's one of the challenges I've had. When you work with engineers and you work with people at that kind of level, they have a really hard time respecting and accepting breaking this down to the regular public. And the one thing I always did when I kept talking about what I was really fascinated was about NASA. NASA has two forms of communications. They have the communications for their experts and then they have the specific communications for the public. And I don't know, how how are you able to break some possibly that barrier at the UN? Because the UN speaks at a very difficult level, at least when you're at one of the COPs, uh, at one of their climate dialogues. So how have you been able to find that acceptance for the work that you did? Well, I think you are exactly right. And uh, let me just say that NASA is a 
fantastic case study. They do great things with their communications team. They're very effective. And I think that partly what has worked for organizations like the UN and uh, others that I've worked with over the years is when you can demonstrate to the experts the power of communicating to the public and the ways in which that public knowledge changes behavior to actually impact the work that they are doing, then they understand the importance of communicating to the public. Now, not every one of your experts is going to be a great public-facing speaker. That's okay. Identify one or two champions who can then do that work of translation and who are compassionate but also passionate about the work so that they can represent in layman's terms, in a more accessible dialogue, that language. One of my favorite examples is from the American Museum of Natural History here in New York City, where I live. And Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is an astrophysicist, has really become one of the leading faces of science in this country, because even though he's the director of this very well-known, long-standing research organization museum, he's very focused on how do I teach people what it is that I care about so that they care about it too. And he understands that power of speaking, not in simplistic terms per se, but in more accessible terms, right? The idea is not to dumb down the content. It is to break it down and make it more understandable in the language of somebody who's not familiar with those technical terms. And Tarnit, one thing that you did that I thought was really smart when you were at Gasnova was using metaphor and using examples that demonstrate in an illustrative way what it is that you guys were doing at that time. And I think that's very important. Sometimes it's not about making the exact translation of the technical language into something else, but really trying to demonstrate to people, how does it work? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because what was it you said? He said simplicity versus... You want to make it accessible. Accessible. I love that. Simplicity versus accessible. accessible. That's, that's mm-hmm. a really a really good way because I just found that it was hard for me sometimes to get the engineers or people to really want to dumb it down. And then it's also, you get in this murky phase and that's maybe where accessible is kind of the key thing is, you know, when you're going to conference where you maybe are with peers and you go into very, very complicated language to the point where not even your peers understand. And then I remember I was trying to help this one guy to break it down, but we always, there is this, get this crossroad in a way where how do you actually make it accessible without compromising? And I think that's where the engineers and lawyers become so stringent on their definitions. Right. And, and, and since you've had parents that are attorneys, how have you been able to bridge that? Do you have any tips? I think that there are two things that are really important here. First, reminding them that even the expert audience they may be speaking to are not necessarily subject matter experts in their particular area and helping them to simply remind themselves to define the terminology that they are using. I know that one of the things that you have been doing with this podcast is talking about, you know, getting away from the acronyms, right? So even defining those terms for people in a very simple way of, I said this, this is what I mean by it, and then moving on, it immediately makes your conversation with your audience more fluid because they at least understand what it is that you're trying to get across with those ideas, 
And then the second piece of this, I think, is to, again, uh, uh, remind them why it is that you are explaining this information, right? If your goal is to transmit this information to somebody else, but you have done it in a way that they cannot understand, then you are actually missing out on achieving the thing that you're trying to achieve. So when you frame it for them in that way and you say, ultimately, what do you want them to get out of this interaction? Then they understand the point of it, right? If their goal is to educate other people and remind them, well, by educating them in terms they can't understand, you have not educated them. They go, oh, you're right. What's a different way that I can do this? And sometimes it is about facilitating those tools. How can we give you the metaphors, give you the charts, give you the infographics that help you to demonstrate what it is that you are trying to get across and to understand that it's not always in the same medium. Perhaps somebody is a great lecturer, they speak very clearly. However, again, if you don't know the terminology, it's difficult to understand. Well, can we give them a chart that they can walk you through or an an animation that demonstrates the process so that the audience has more than one medium to engage in the information, that can make a real difference. I think that's actually one of the reasons that TED Talks are so powerful. You are not only seeing the expert and they are speaking, you can read their body language and you are seeing the information on the screen that helps to illustrate what it is that they are saying. I think multimedia presentations like that make a huge difference for different organizations. And again, when you're breaking it down even further, like with the example that I spoke about of the FAO campaign around bees, they were breaking it down in many different ways in different places. So you had infographics in some places, blog posts that were written in other places. You had short videos on Instagram. You had interviews on Facebook. You had articles on LinkedIn. So you're expressing that information in many, many different formats because everybody needs the information in a different way. That's interesting. So kind of like what you could do if you are helping someone or even helping yourself and you're an engineer trying to write a piece is to try to think, how can I do this multi-sensory? So, yeah, like, yeah. so maybe the multi-sensory, it's almost like a multi-sensory strategy where, okay, I'm going to be speaking on this, but let me make sure I have some graphics and PowerPoint that can go to some people and then start thinking about maybe animation and so forth so that people see it from their vantage point instead of just from the one way you probably think is the best way to communicate. That's exactly right. Oh, that's very interesting. So what do you think about that from the complex to the accessible? I'd really love to hear more about how did you do that with the IMF podcast? Because that's, IMF is like, whoa, complicated. Sure. <laughs> you just think about that. It's like, it's like this big white box, IMF. What, you know, you know, they're important and you know, they're, you know what I mean? So how did they break it down to make it accessible to people? Or, or were they trying to make it accessible to people or were they trying to make it accessible to policymakers? I think in their case, they did want the podcasts to bring these different economists and different subject matter experts to a broader audience, not just policymakers, but people who are interested in economics. And in their case, I think that they wanted to get to perhaps not the kind of audience that you would get with NPR's Planet Money, where it's really pop economics, but certainly more accessible than what they were producing previously, which was essentially lectures from economists on very wonky, very technical subjects. They wanted to demonstrate to people what does economics actually mean 
in the lives of people around the world. So what does economics look like for a farmer in Africa? What does economics look like because it is impacting jobs in America? So when you were thinking about it from that perspective, you do want to essentially help people get into these deep topics. And I think that the best way that we were able to do that together was to change the format of the podcast so that it had a host, someone like you who could ask the questions in the guise of the audience and help to delve deeper into them, break them down and make them more accessible with the host so that it wasn't just somebody who is very technical going on without a dialogue. And I think that that kind of model can be really helpful for a lot of different businesses. I've worked with many professional services businesses where they're creating content, as you know, with some of the, much of the work that I do is in the space of content marketing. And by using a really great host who represents that point of view of the audience, you can explore topics in a way that's more meaningful to people. They have that opportunity to break the topics down in a more personal way. So when you work on some of the clients where you have made the complex accessible, have they gotten like aha moments? Have you seen resistance? And and how have you taken them on that journey? (laughs) I think that's a very complicated question because every client is different. So oftentimes I'm very lucky that the marketers within these organizations will understand what the underlying marketing objective is, right? So if their goal is to serve these audiences or perhaps people who are interested in specific topics, they understand that if their goal is to reach those people, they need to be more effective. So oftentimes I get buy-in pretty quickly from the marketing team or the communications team because those are already their objectives, right? The broader organization has specific goals from a communications perspective, and oftentimes the academic people aren't necessarily thinking about those because their objectives day-to-day are completely different, right? If you're talking to an economist who works for the IMF, they're to make predictions, they're there to do models, they're there to do research. They are not necessarily thinking to themselves, I need to teach this to the audience that the IMF serves. However, that's where you really have to get into that bridge of, listen, the organization as a whole that you serve, whose mission you believe in, they are saying that they want to make this information relevant to people because it helps the underlying mission of the organization. So for instance, when you talk about the IMF being that they are the International Monetary Fund, right, they are speaking about monetary policy, they are talking about the economies of many different countries around the world. What they know is that economic policy actually begets economic policy in the sense that when you tell people things are going to change, then they change. It actually is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that sense. So I think that when you're speaking to people about the work that they do, you have to remind them that you won't get results. You do not communicate to the people who need to produce those results. And that's where you can get more buy-in. That's really interesting. So, but you haven't just worked with the large organizations. You actually, I can't remember what the organization was named, but you used to be a knitter and you worked for knitting organizations. So, so going from like IMF, the UN, and then tell a little bit about the knitting, because I think that gives you a sense of color and understanding of making things accessible. Wouldn't you think that really helped you? 
Absolutely. So I started my career in the arts and crafts industry. I worked for several years at Line Brand Yarn Company, which is the oldest American hand knitting yarn company, as well as uh, advising many small businesses in the arts and crafts space over the years. So I think that what's really interesting about those spaces is that people are really passionate about crafts, right? And oftentimes there's a huge desire when you learn one thing as any kind of a hobbyist. Think about your own hobbies, whether you are a woodworker or you like to cook. When you learn a little bit, it really empowers you, right? It makes you feel really good about this particular area and you want to learn more. And so for brands, that gives them the opportunity to say, hey, I want to facilitate your learning. And I think that becomes a really powerful good that the organization can provide and communicate through. So what we did with Line Brand Yarn Company was not only did we launch a blog very early in the blog days, we launched a podcast that was a first wave podcast. Um, We were reaching 15,000 people with every episode. It was really very popular. This was- Wow, that's a lot. You know, there were only a couple of hundred podcasts. So what else were people going to listen to? You wanted to do a craft, you had to listen to my podcast, basically. (laughs) And it also- was about finding new ways for the company to get involved with the things that people were doing. So I'm proud to say that many of the initiatives that I started were at the time very innovative. Now you see them everywhere because they were about finding ways to identify things that people were doing in their regular lives and find a role for the brand to play in them. One thing that we brought into the digital space that previously was very grassroots with something called a knit along. And so the idea was everybody coming together to make the same pattern at the same time and learning from each other. And that's something that I really pioneered in terms of putting it on blogs, putting it into videos and uh, making that an interactive experience. How did you do that? How did you do that? So you announced and uh, Yeah. So what we would do is we would announce what the pattern was and give people a couple of days, usually about a week to gather their supplies. And then over the course of eight weeks, we would take a certain technically difficult section of that pattern and explain it on the blog. And so people could follow along week over week, show their progress by posting their photos and posting their comments. And then at the end of it, they had a finished project, but it wasn't just them, right? If you knit by yourself in Utah, but you want to make friends in New York and California and Norway and all around the world, we had people actually participating in all of these different places come together because they were doing it in real time somewhat asynchronously but but together and so it became a group activity and it's so interesting to me now again because that was something that again existed as a grassroots thing where you would do it how many years ago this was probably in 2008 or so that we did our first one wow you're so ahead of the curve Sure. And what's been interesting is in the last three, four or five years, I've seen things like bake-alongs and craft-alongs and quilt-alongs. And I think, boy, if I had not put that knit-along online, none of these other things would have happened. But I think that the idea of it is so wonderful because it's all about, again, defining how can we play a role that helps people come together, learn become more engaged in this particular topic area. And I think that that's really amazing. In some ways, I think that's why I love looking at like the tech space where they're doing things like hackathons and 
sprees where they're bringing people together to solve a particular kind of problem or even do white hat hacking together, right? Because when you're bringing people together to do something, there's a sense of camaraderie that actually empowers people to do more. It's interesting you say that because this kind of knit along has really been now gone mainstream, if you think about with the coronavirus. Sure. I think that's what's really interesting. You see so many people are doing things online, like for instance, every morning now, I'm working out with a trainer in Sioux Falls that has about a hundred people from around the country that are now following her exercise online. And you're seeing wine tasting. You're seeing a lot of also progress. Like if you want to post a podcast, you can do classes and follow along. So it's really, it's really expanded. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the reasons that I'm somewhat grateful that this pandemic has happened now in 2020 and not 10 years ago is that we have so much more technology and we have this ability to interface with each other very easily, right? All of us have the power to look at social media on our smartphones or hop on our computers and do a video call or speak to people that we love and see their faces anywhere around the world. And that accessibility makes it easier for people to connect and find reasons to connect. A great example of that that I think has been really fun has been the DJ D-Nice. He is doing virtual, he calls them club quarantine. They're virtual dance parties, usually at, I think, 5 p.m. Pacific each Wednesday. And DJ D-Nice? Yes, like the letter D-Nice. And then he is spinning music from his kitchen counter in LA and people from around the world can join him on Instagram live and watch his music streams. So you can enjoy all kinds of interesting eclectic songs. He recently did a Bob Marley night. He did another night where he was honoring Prince. And there are also a lot of celebrity guests on this podcast or not even podcast, but just live stream because they happen to really enjoy his music, right? So at one point he had Michelle Obama jump on. He's had many different actors and well-known musicians jump on and just share a little bit of what's going on with them. And I think that it really brings us together. If you just love music, even casually, like I would consider myself not very well versed in the space of DJs or club music, but being able to enjoy these things is really fun. Oh, that's really cool. I did. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting to see all the activity that's been going online with um, the coronavirus. Absolutely. And as a language expert or as a, someone that goes in communications, this is one of the questions I gave you beforehand, which I'm really fascinated about is why do you think we're, we haven't decided on a name? I think like beforehand, you'd always see like the New York Times if they wrote something. It, that's usually the word that everyone used. And today it seems like we are such in such different factions that there hasn't been really one word that's come out. And I don't know what you think about that. You've got like coronavirus, COVID-19, Wuhan, Chinese virus. I mean, from your perspective, and you're actually in New York and you're in the worst area of the U.S. with the coronavirus. And it seems, at least my friends in New York, a lot of them are calling it COVID-19. So I don't know what you think about what's happened in in that language and what do you think history is actually going to be calling it? Sure. I love this question. I think it's so fascinating from many different perspectives. I think that if you look at the way language has evolved, and I am somebody who really loves 
language. I would say that I'm more of an amateur expert than a real expert in terms of like etymology. But if you look at the way language evolves, oftentimes what words we use indicates the tribe that we belong to, right? So if you are in a particular community, you might notice that you have slang that's really specific to your community. I'm I grew up in New Jersey and, you know, there's a whole faction of people who say Taylor ham and a whole other tailor of people who say pork roll for this ham product. Uh, Taylor is a brand of it. And where I grew up, we called it Taylor ham. I didn't even know it was called pork roll until I think it was like (laughs) like 20. So language really says something about who you are and how do you belong. I think that because this is a novel virus, it's completely new. We've never seen it before. At the very beginning, people struggled to define what it was. And until the WHO said we were going to call it COVID-19, there was no official name. So people described it as a coronavirus because it is in that class of viruses. And I think that that is a more illustrative term. So I think for many people, because coronavirus was the first term they heard, that's how they want to describe it. Of course, it's not super accurate. So that's why the experts don't really like us using it, right? They're, they're like, well, it's a coronavirus. It's not the coronavirus, right? Oh, interesting. And so... If you look at the New York Times, for instance, they will write about it as the coronavirus, which causes COVID-19, because they want to get it right while also making it easily accessible to readers. So they're they're using both terms and actually both of them pretty consistently. I think that in the past, there have been lots of diseases that have been defined by where they came from, but because that does give them a certain tinge, I think that many organizations have tried to avoid that, but I think that's why you saw Wuhan virus, Chinese virus earlier on, because people were trying to define where it came from. But the truth is that viruses don't know any boundaries, right? So at some point or another, it doesn't really matter where it came from. It matters what it is. I think I was telling you at the beginning of our conversation that here in New York, many of our friends have been calling it the COVID in some ways reflecting the way we describe the flu, right? Have you ever noticed that we say I have a cold, but we say I have the flu? I don't, we don't say I have the cold. So it's really interesting that we have this dichotomy in our language. But yes, many of my friends, we've been jokingly calling it the COVID because it makes it feel like a terminology that you would use in day-to-day life. Whereas COVID-19 sounds like H1N1 swine flu, which is... That, that's the very technical name for it, right? When you're trying to be technically precise, you say H1N1. But if you're talking about it broadly, you say the swine flu, right? Right. And so I think yeah. it's, it's about how do, how do people feel comfortable describing it to each other so that it, it feels like something that they understand? And again, how, who, who do you belong with and to? And how do you demonstrate that to other people through your language choice? Well, that's interesting to say, because that kind of goes back to what you're talking about, simplicity versus accessibility. So what the New York Times has really been smart about is being accurate enough so that the experts that are reading New York Times feel like you're not, you're not taking away the meaning of using COVID-19, but at the same time, wanting to appeal to the mass appeal using then Corona. That's exactly right. And I see this also with organizations that I work with in the healthcare space, where they are oftentimes very thoughtful about what can we actually say that is factually accurate, but is not overwhelming. And that can be a real 
challenge in terms of that balance. So you'll see that in, on some of those teams, they specifically have science writers who are well-versed in that balancing act. And then they have all of their content vetted by an expert so that it does not conflict with anything that is true. And I think that, again, sometimes it's about building in those processes so that it's easier to do that. And it's not just the healthcare space. I also work with clients in the financial services space where this is an issue for them to make sure that they're communicating accurately and within the bounds of what they are allowed to say, but also making it language that we can all understand. When you're in those areas, you probably work a lot with attorneys then, right? To make sure the accuracy. So you're like going back to your family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That is somewhat true. Yes. I would say that most of these teams have some kind of a legal and compliance process and team. In the best cases, I always recommend that they are brought really early into the process so that they know what it is that you're trying to achieve and they will work with you on getting there. Oftentimes I think where there's a breakdown in communication between the marketers and the attorneys is when you come at them and you say, these are the things that we're going to do. And they're like, whoa, whoa, can't say any of those things. (laughs) Right. But if you told them at the beginning, this is what we're trying to achieve. So we think that the best way for us to communicate it is this, then they see the bigger picture. So they can come to you and say, well, you can't do it this way. However, since this is what you're trying to achieve, could we come at it at a different direction? And they'll actually be part of that dialogue and that exploratory process. That's kind of like life, you know, when you bring people on from the beginning, they're much more open to, to being collaborative and helpful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that when people have a better sense of what are you trying to achieve overall, then the scope is not so narrow, right? It's easy to say yes or no to something small. But when you see the bigger picture, we all know that there's a lot more nuance. And so people are more willing to work with you. You're a content marketer. So like if you're thinking about acronyms, and, and for instance, with you and I went to school together, and we studied strategic communications. Sure. Then when I look at your website, you're you term yourself as a marketing advisor, but mm-hmm. teach uh, at communications. Mm-hmm. And then we have content marketing. You know, you have, you won the PR award and then you're like the most influential content marketer. It gets kind of confusing. Sure. We have a great thing in Norway called a dear child that you love has many names. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we have so many different names and I'm just curious, what made you choose marketing Strategic communication hasn't really become mainstream. I was always trying to make it mainstream. So anywhere I went to got a job, I would always say, I'm strategic communications, and that's what I want my title to be. I've kind of given up on it because it doesn't really seem like it makes that much of a difference. But you working with clients, you've been in the sphere now because you're you're actually a professor at uh, the Strategic Communication Studies at Columbia. What What are you seeing in all these names and... How do you navigate and how do you communicate, number one, to regular folks that you're trying to sell your services to, and number two, to the peers that you're with? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you're absolutely right. There are so many terms that even marketers don't always understand the difference between some of these disciplines. I think that most of the time when we come up with terminology, it's because we're trying to define a specific set of behaviors as something that we want to standardize, right? So with content marketing, the idea is this discipline of marketing that is about giving content in order to build a relationship with your audience. So it's not straight marketing in the traditional sense of something like, here's a call to action or here's an advertising message by our thing. Content marketing is about, let me give you my expertise or let me give you my resources so that 
you were interested in engaging with me further, right? So if you think about a brand like BuzzFeed, for instance, they give away the vast majority of their content. The vast majority of their content is free. And of course, as a media organization, that's partly because they want the eyeballs. But the other thing is that because there is trust in their brand, they can then sell products to this audience because they already have a relationship. If you watch BuzzFeed's tasty uh, cooking shows, and of which there are dozens and dozens, then you are more likely to purchase a BuzzFeed tasty pot or pan because you already feel like they have a relationship with you. You want to, we as human beings by nature want to support the people who we have a relationship with, right? It makes sense. So that's, I think, the, the discipline of content marketing. I think that how I get people on board or why we use different titles is to help people understand what kind of marketing we do. So yes, I position myself as a marketing consultant because I think that marketing is specifically the discipline of, of creating that reputation, right? I think that communications for a lot of brands is that more neutral term of we want to push out what is factually accurate, but we don't necessarily want to um, build our brand in a specific way. So I think you see the word communications more frequently with political organizations with organizations that may have a more neutral approach. So like the UN, FAO, as well as the IMF, they'll have communications departments, right? This is the factual information that we are presenting. We're not here to build our reputation per se. We're just providing the information. Whereas I think that marketing for most for-profit organizations and even many of the nonprofit organizations that I work for is about saying, hey, we want to solicit people's interest in engaging with us. So I think that's the differential between the two of those. What and about PR then? So I think PR, because PR, this idea of public relations is a, quite frankly a misnomer, right? I think that you'll see that PR is mostly subsumed now by either their communications department. Most of the time it does exist in the communications department or by the marketing team in some limited cases. And that's because it's public relations is weirdly more about your relations with the media. So it's... it's <laughs> It's actually sort of a misnomer. So I think that, um, again, lots of these different things evolve over time and you realize that they're called funny things for no particularly good reason. Um, but my bigger challenge that I have day to day, especially with smaller companies, is the difference between marketing and sales in some ways, where, many, yeah, where many people will come to you and they'll say, I need to sell more. So I want to hire a marketing team. And I tell them, I can't actually sell you more. I can bring people to the watering hole and then you have to sell more. The sales team has to sell more. Sales is about closing the deal and making sure that the fit between the organization and whoever that end client, consumer, customer is, is right and then making it work for them. But marketing is about, again, burnishing that reputation, creating desire, creating the interest in coming to the brand and that is a slightly different discipline. And so the work that I do won't necessarily sell you the thing, but I can bring people to the door and I can make sure that they're really interested and engage with your brand up to that point. But after that point, that is not the work that we do. So you bring them to the water. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, but then it's really interesting because I think for our listeners, then what would you say is the key thing with with marketing, content marketing? Because I think that's really what people are seeing more and more is that you have to do Facebook posts, you have to be engaging with people. It's no longer going to just fit to have a Facebook ad or an Instagram ad or any kind of ad. You have to do a little bit more, give of yourself more, and. If you have a product that's not very emotional, it's kind of hard to be engaging in some ways. So what what kind of tips would you give to our listeners about that? Sure. Well, I, I agree with you that content marketing is something that you will see more and more of and have seen over the last five years really increase in the acceptance and the usage of I think that my main tip would be that you do not have to create every kind of content and you do not need to publish it in every kind of space. I speak to small businesses all the time where they say to me, well, we're just two people. We're just one person. We're we're five people. We don't have the ability to do a Facebook and a TikTok and a Twitter and an Instagram and a Pinterest and a website and a podcast and a video. And I say, that's fine. You shouldn't do all of those things. Oh, really? That's good. Doing all of them will not necessarily serve the specific audiences that you want to engage with. Now, that's not to say that you can't be in certain platforms in an, in an unusual way. And I'll give you an example of that in just a minute. But what I try to tell people is look at the audience that you are trying to reach, who are your ideal audience. What are the spaces that they are going to engage in every day? If that space is not Instagram, don't do Instagram. If that space isn't Facebook, don't do Facebook. Select one or two platforms to start with where you are going to be really engaging and really provide value and really find your community on those platforms. If you can start there, then you can expand outwards. But the important thing is to, again, use content marketing as an opportunity to give of yourself and build that reputation, that relationship with your audience. Giving isn't always expertise, right? There are some brands where the giving is fun. It's entertainment, it's games, it's excitement. In some cases, the brands give of their experts or their access to interesting people. So you'll see that some brands, you know, they have lots and lots of celebrities come in to just share their two cents about something. For instance, Architectural Digest has a whole series of videos that is just house tours. So it's giving you the access to homes of celebrities that you would never otherwise see, right? Oh, that's cool. I didn't that's know that. fun. Yeah, that is and fun. that is content marketing, but it's not necessarily traditional expertise content marketing. It's not about someone telling you how to decorate your home, you know, which might be something that you think, oh, well, an architectural digest, they would tell you about interiors, but they're like, no, what people actually really want is the experience of walking through a person's home with their narrative, where they're actually taking you through as a guide and sharing with you these personal stories. And so they recognize that that's what they can offer their audience. So think through what it is that you can offer your audience and how you can do that in those platforms where they exist and are likely to engage. Now, like I said, one of my, my favorite examples that I give on stage a lot is if you are a financial services brand, and someone tells you you need to start a Snapchat channel, I'm going to argue that that's probably not the best channel for you, right? And oftentimes we, we hear that. I was just speaking to a client of mine that they are arborists 
and they were telling me, hey, we're thinking about a TikTok channel because we hear that TikTok's getting big right now. And I thought, boy, who of your audience do you think is watching TikTok right now? The vast majority of your customers are 55 plus. Exactly who are we speaking to, right? Their children? Do their children hire people to trim their trees? I don't know. So you have to decide what is the right fit. However, in some cases, you can be creative. So um, one of my favorite unusual examples is of a venture capitalist who has become a phenomenon on Snapchat. And what he recognized was that the people that he wanted to reach were young founders. And young founders were likely to be on Snapchat communicating with each other on a personal level. But if he was the only venture capitalist who was giving you advice 15 seconds at a time, then you would subscribe to watch his content if you were a young tech founder. And so it actually gave him a real edge because then he built these relationships with young tech founders who might be just at the start of their companies. But once that company has reached a certain maturity and they're thinking about investment, who do they think of first? It's this guy. Yeah, they'll definitely think of him. So content marketing is a little bit of a longer play. And sometimes that can feel painful for organizations because they tell me, you know, we don't have a year to build the relationship. We need to get somebody in the door tomorrow. Well, that's why I think that content marketing is one aspect of your marketing plan, right? We do a lot of paid marketing for our clients as well. So we do do a lot of advertising on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Google, et cetera, because those are reaching people who are more ready to buy and might be ready to make that buying decision. But you have to do both because you're going to have people who will like you now and be in your pipeline a year from now. But if you're not building the pipeline for a year from now, then it can be very difficult to continue to sustain. It's much more expensive to keep paying for ads than it is to build that long-term relationship. Yeah. And with building relationships, kind of like you're saying, the long game is that when you really, that's when you really connect with people and then they have a history of you, which is probably what's really key. And I think that's what like you, you should be, whatever you do, it should be consistent. And I always say you should stick with it at least a year or two years. That's very true. And I think that that can be a difficult thing for people to understand <laughs> about marketing, right? Is that again, it's, it is a long-term investment, but I truly believe that every organization, every company will have value for building these relationships. And even if you don't realize that that is what you are doing, that is the marketing of your organization. Even networking is part of the marketing of your organization. A few years ago, I worked with a client, which is a glove manufacturer. They are completely B2B. So they're only selling to other businesses. And again, they're not consumer facing at all. And you might think, well, Gloves don't seem like something that you would particularly need marketing for, but there's many other glove manufacturers. Right. That you want to... <laughs> How do you differentiate yourself, right? Exactly. You want to get in front of people and be the one glove company that they always call. This is how you do it. That's really interesting. So when you look at all the platforms that are out there now, what do you think is the one that we should be keeping our eye on? I, I've kind of like lost interest in Snapchat. I don't know if that's wise of me to do. And then I've been really focusing kind of more like seeing that Instagram is taking more of that market share. Do you think that's true or no? I do think that Instagram has stolen a lot of market share from Snapchat because Instagram has always inherently been more public. So they've taken a lot of those features and built it into an easier to access platform, right? Even my parents-in-law are on 
Instagram and they like it because it, the functionality is very simple and they already had an account. So, you know, they didn't have to change platforms in order to see what is happening with everybody. I think that Snapchat is still, based on the data that I've seen very recently, still very popular with Gen Z as a communications channel between individuals. So you'll see that friends are still using Snapchat as a place to communicate back and forth, sending snaps and sending personal messages. And for that community of users, I think the value of it is this idea that slightly less traceable than even Instagram, because you'll see on Instagram, you actually have an archive of these stories, et cetera. There's basically this trail of content that still exists somewhere on their servers and Snapchat is built to be the opposite of that. And so I think that for that younger generation where they've grown up in a time that is more paranoid about data security, there's some real appeal there. And then the other platform that those younger people are on, so we're seeing huge growth in the 25 and under, so 13 to 25, is of course TikTok. I know TikTok is amazing. You can see what the appeal of TikTok is for that group of people as well, as well as older people, right? That TikTok is much more based on community, that, that much of the content is based on participating in things that already exist. So things snowball very quickly and things build upon themselves. And so it is a platform that's essentially built for viral content, to produce viral content in a way that we've never had before. Of course, you think, oh, well, viral content is the product of all social media, but actually TikTok has taken it to that next level. Yeah. And it's interesting to see Gary V go on there with all his uh, sure. bits, and then you have some of them. Some of them work, some of them don't. And I was like, sure. well, I just didn't think of TikTok as a place for information. I thought it more for just fun. Sure. But then you're seeing some people that are really able to make it make it work. I think so. And I think that sometimes being a first mover in a space and saying, I'm going to do something unique and different, like the venture capitalist that I mentioned before, can really pay off because then you do get that community built around you. Gary, I think, is very creative when it comes to using new platforms and experimenting with them. He's not afraid of experimenting with them and his team is very good at that. So I think that it's not a surprise at all that he would be good at TikTok. I think that the other thing we have to consider though, that is not just social media platforms, but in terms of technology is the voice space. So um, I had the pleasure of being at the voice conference last fall. And we're really talking all about multimodal content. Again, the ways in which we're consuming content isn't just via our you know, social media feeds anymore. It's also asking our Alexas or Google Home to right. give yeah. us the content. And now that they are building them to have both voice and also screens, you get that multimodal experience where sometimes you'll ask it for something and it will display you the information. And again, that's perhaps the best way for us to communicate is, again, recognizing that we have more value in some media than others, right? So if I ask for the weather, yes, it can tell me the temperature, but if it shows me the chart of the next five days, that's actually more valuable to me. I can ingest information more quickly reading than I can listening. So So do you have an Alexa? Yes, we have. Gosh, we have several. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't, I haven't gone there yet because I haven't really seen the value of it. But what I have seen though, is that on messenger people, Use, some people are very much into using voicemail messages. That's right. They're recording it. And then I'm more of like a typer, but then I'll type and they'll do the voicemail. I'll type. Voice. Right. People are using what they really fit to their personality. 
That's exactly right. And again, I think partly it is also what is easy to consume in certain places and languages. For instance, I had a friend who, with his family, he spoke Arabic. And so they always did voicemail texts because it was just much faster than trying to type on a keyboard on the screen. And so you just have to recognize that the ability of technology to adapt with us is very powerful and not to expect everyone to want the same things. No, it's not. So thank you so much. I think I just wanted to ask uh, two last questions. Like, do you have a hack that you, something that's just like either a um, new software product or any kind of hack that simplified your life that you think you'd want to share that could help? Sure. One tool that we use quite a lot in our company to help our team feel more together with Convince and Convert. I work with a distributed team. So um, even when we are not in lockdown, uh, everybody's across the U.S. and um, sometimes internationally as well. We use a tool called Sococo, which is a essentially a digital office. It has a little map. You can see everybody in their individual offices or you can see people Sococo? pop into Sococo. S-O-C-O-C-O. Oh, I'll put that link in there. Sococo, okay. Sure. And so it is a digital map. It allows people to see their coworkers in their own individual offices. You can see when people are in their office together. You can see when somebody says that they have a busy signal on, so they're not available or they're away from their desk. And it allows people to hop into conference rooms and see each other in the conference room and video chat, etc. And what I like about it is that it's a little bit more human or naturalistic than say something like a Slack or some of the other tools that are out there where people are just a list of names, right? Instead of having just a list of names, you're actually seeing them in a space. So it gives you more of a sense of togetherness. And I think that whenever you're working with a distributed team, and again, whether or not you're in this situation or in the future, you're working with a distributed team, it can feel like you have no idea who is available and you don't know when they are speaking to other members of your team. So having this digital map where you can see who's together makes a real difference. And I really like that as a tool. And it also tells you who's in the office because everyone has different hours. So I've had people tell me, oh, I'm surprised you're still in the office. I just assumed that you had left your computer on or something. And I said, nope, if I'm on the map, I'm available. You can always message me. So it makes it easier for people to communicate with you. Oh, that's, I'm going to look into that because I'm communicating quite a bit with Europe and Australia. So that would be good to have something like that. Wow, that's really neat. Thank you. So as a last question, and thank you so much for this informative, we went tour de force here from the UN to <laughs> content marketing to reaching people. So it's been really, really, really great. What word or commercial or marketing campaign, either your childhood or now that you've really either influenced you or you really, really liked? I think that one of the most influential marketing campaigns that has happened in the last 10 years or so that really showed the power of an always-on team was the Oreo Dunk in the Dark ad that happened during the Super Bowl when there was the power outage during the Super Bowl. And for me as a marketer, that was a moment that really demonstrated to our industry the importance of building an agile marketing team. Prior to that, that wasn't an expectation 
of the teams at all. People thought, well, marketers at a certain point, they just turn off, they move on with their day, right? But in a social media world where everything is 24 seven and in a world where these large events become cultural touchstones, the brands that can move the fastest and that are moving in real time are going to be the most effective in communication. And so I think that for me, that was a real cultural flashpoint. Everybody talked about that. That was amazing. Everybody talked about that campaign, but it also really emphasized the, the necessary investment in social media marketing in a way that we couldn't have had otherwise. A million marketers could have told you, we really have to do this always on marketing. And millions of executives would have been like, no, sorry, we're not giving you this budget. But when they saw it on screen in that moment, they understood. They understood the power of what we do. Absolutely. Well, Zomti, this has been fun. I've learned a lot. So I'm really excited. So I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Where can people reach you? Where's the best place to reach you at? Sure. So you can find more information about me, my speaking at zontiho.com. And you can find out more about my company at mediavalerie.com or convinceandconvert.com. So we'll put those in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you know at least one or two friends that would get a lot of value from this, send this episode or text a couple of your friends right now to WhatsApp group, post it on your Instagram stories, Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget to tag me at Torin B. Share with anyone you think that needs to hear this message. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And how can we prove and make this better? Or how did this help you? And don't forget to join us next week for another episode of Moving Beyond Acronyms.